Rome FM. The interest in open science and just science, making science much more accessible and, and effective. So I am really interested in, you know, can you harness this kind of creative exhaust that comes from all this individual thinking and note taking? Hello there. Welcome to Rome FM. Here we dive into the minds, workflows, and machinations of the Rome cult, the believers of Rome research. My name is Norman Cella, and I am on a mission to deconstruct wisdom from all walks of life so we can understand each other better. In this episode, we talk with Stian Haklev, who is the engineer slash learning architect for Minerva Project. We talked about his origin story on life before Rome, diving into the world of open science, collaborative communities, and international development, and connecting all these findings through Rome. He shares with us what should get a page and what shouldn't, and his thoughts on Rome as a networked thought tool and how it changed his thinking. So, without further ado, let's dive into my chat with Stian of Minerva Project. Going right into the show, Stian, welcome to Rome FM. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm very excited about this. (laughs) Well, I hope that you can bear with me as uh, we are plopping through this chat um, on your experiences with Rome Research while we have Rome FM's public Rome graph right here as I am writing notes, so don't fret if you can hear me typing away uh, on my keyboards. But before we make any links between all these new pages that we might make, Stian, I actually do want to know about uh, your origin story because your Twitter thread on all the projects that you do varies quite a lot, but they focus on a few key points. But I would love to hear uh, your take what is your origin story? Like, what have you been working on uh, before you stumbled into Rome? Uh, a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a few different threads, I think, that go through my life. Uh, one sure. of them is probably uh, related to international and kind of languages, uh, starting with going to a, a quite unique high school, uh, which was in Italy, which was called the United World College. And uh, is a, is a part of a network, a small network of, of colleges that follows the international baccalaureate curriculum, but has all these people from all around the world that are not necessarily wealthy at all. So that most of them have full scholarships, and it's very focused on uh, international understanding, politics, um, culture, and, and so on. And it's, it's an incredibly intense experience because you're maybe 16 and suddenly you're away from home. You're going through this extremely or fairly intense kind of um, academic uh, curriculum. And so the only people you can lean on are, you know, your roommates from Slovenia or from China or from uh, Zimbabwe. And those become lifelong friends. Uh, And that's also, so it did kind of two things to me. It made it feel like I could be at home anywhere in the world. Like I wasn't scared to go different places. And I also uh, it reinforced a, a long interest I had in language learning. So right after that high school experience, I studied Chinese uh, in university. I took the train to China and uh, taught uh, China, English there, but my goal was to learn Chinese. And I've continued kind of, um, I mean, I've studied Hindi. Um, I, I was in, lived in Indonesia. I learned Indonesian. And also I, I um, did an undergrad in international development studies, um, which is a bit of a continuation of those th- two threads of being interested in you know, how this world that we live in works and also really trying to access um, 
a multitude of, of kind of uh, inputs um, from different people, different cultures, different languages. Um, and so that's one thread. And I think another thread is an interest in learning and in information. And also, I was kind of a geek growing up, you know, um, it was very different 30 years ago with um, the, what we had available, but uh, getting into Linux, um, getting into some some early programming and the, this uh, ethos of open source and Richard Stallman and you know, all of these mythical figures um, being, being very, very fascinated by that. And then uh, later as I came across um, things like Creative Commons where and open educational resources mm. where people were saying, huh, so if the open source, both kind of the ethos, the legal framework of the licensees, but also the ways in which the open source community is able to work together uh, in this kind of decentralized fashion um, seems to be so incredibly productive. Um, how could we actually apply this to other aspects um, of knowledge production and sharing? And so, of course, Wikipedia is one example. Uh, the Creative Commons licenses that enable you to find images that you can remix, uh, the open educational resources. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a huge a spectrum of, of cultural resources. And then I brought in, again, kind of my interest in languages. And so I was thinking, okay, can we create all these open educational resources, maybe we can translate them, maybe we can actually like bring in these international perspectives. Uh, basically, I did a, a master's in uh, comparative higher education. I looked at open educational resources in Chinese universities. That was a nice combination of some of those aspects. I got to uh, both use my Chinese in terms of uh, talking to people, reading articles and so on, but I was also able to uh, publish uh, some of my findings in Chinese journals uh, and, I, and I've got a number of citations. And so that's also really exciting to me to, to actually be contributing to that debate and also for people to hold me accountable because I could write almost anything and have my uh, professors in Canada um, take it for, you know, uh, good fish, as we say. But uh, <laughs> when you have the actual professors who are involved in these movements in China reading my stuff, um, you have to really get it right I mean, I've always been a self-learner. Uh, I'm now, a, I mean, titles are silly, but I'm a senior engineer. I've never formally studied a, a, an hour of computer science in my life. Um, I've, of course, spent a lot of time <laughs> informally studying. And <laughs> so I've always been very interested in how we can better support um, self-learners and, and collaborative learning. And part of that is, of course, uh, access to materials, open access journal articles, uh, it's the design of materials to make them really helpful to self-learners. It's the communities where people can collaborate on learning, and that can be Stack Overflow, can be YouTube, can be um, much more specific course sites. Uh, and so during my master's, I helped co-found something called a peer-to-peer -peer university, because basically at that time, we, had, we didn't have MOOCs yet. There were no massive open online courses. Mm. Um, but MIT and some other universities had begun to put uh, lecture recordings and PDFs online using a Creative Commons license that would enable people to actually remix or subtitle or um, do different creative things with them. And so we thought, you know, what we need is not really experts because we have all these materials that can kind of act as experts. 
what we need is someone to take these materials and kind of sequence them, curate them, pick out the best resources. Because if, when you're starting to learn something, you're not necessarily a good judge of what is, what is most helpful. And yeah. then we need a cohort. We want people who all read the same article, who can get together and, um, and discuss it. And also we need, you know, just accountability and kind of motivation and all of those things that we talk about a lot. So, uh, so that was an incredible, you know, experience of this global community trying to just figure this stuff out. And that led me to my PhD, which was looking at what kind of pedagogical theories, but also software designs could actually support these kind of, of collaborative communities because a lot of the educational technology was really focused on having an expert teacher and a lot of students who had to be you know, graded and, and so on. And this was really a, a different kind of um, approach. And so maybe we need different kinds of uh, tools and designs. Led me to a three-year-long postdoc in Switzerland, which is where I am right now, where I worked on an open source system for still teacher-driven, but very kind of um, collaborative, um, fully active learning where the students are not just you know, memorizing things, but they're uh, contributing their own ideas, they're debating, they're uh, maybe doing simulations, uh, role play, all kinds of fun stuff. And finally, I got to join kind of, I think, one of the most exciting uh, places in the world in terms of, of education and also, in fact, <laughs> the international aspect, which is uh, Minerva Project, mm. uh, which is uh, this attempt at completely rethinking undergraduate education and, and saying, you know, so we still want to be selective. We'll still charge a little bit, actually a lot less than most other universities. We'll still charge a bit. So this is not a massive open online course. We'll still take four years and we'll have an accreditation. So your degree at the end will be worth something. But everything else, we're going to rethink from first principles. And we're going to start by saying, what do, A, what do we want you to learn? What do we want someone who goes out after a four-year degree to actually know and be able to apply? And secondly, what is all the things that we now as a community know about how learning works? Because even though there is debate, uh, of course, in the scientific community, there are certain principles that are fairly well understood and yet are completely different from what happens in any university in the world, uh, including the, the absolute top uh, Ivy Leagues and stuff like that. Um, and so to me, you know, being able to do something like that at scale where the things that you're building and it, it sort of unifies my interest in, in technology, uh, in pedagogy, and we have students from all around the world, 80% are not, uh, American. And then we actually have campuses in seven global cities. And now as part of the, the company, we are now, um, partnering with a lot of other institutions and even companies. Uh, all around the world. So um, that's, I guess, my origin story. Oh, wow. There's a lot to unpack here because I love how it blended. The, the fact that you can go from, shall we say, a background trying to understand the world from an international perspective, right? And then diving into pedagogy and the technology behind it and also trying to foster uh, collaborative communities from first principles and I guess uh, more into the Minerva project. Uh, so I guess in the middle of all of this, coming up to when you stumbled into Rome, how did you introduce the tool into what you were working on right now? 
So I have um, a related shorter, but still interesting origin story there because okay. while I was working on my PhD thesis uh, and a PhD thesis in education, there is a huge amount of reading that you need to do. There are all these different theories and it's not like in, I mean, I've never studied physics at that level, but my imagination of the, of the hard sciences is that you get this new theory and kind of replaces the old theories or it subsumes yeah. them. Um, in education, for better or worse, that never really happens. Uh, you just kind of, you know, it's not like the stuff that was said 100 years ago is irrelevant. So you need to know that and you need to know this new stuff. And you always need to know who said what and who critiqued what who, for whom and so on. So it's, it's a really a lot of stuff to keep track of. And you're doing all this reading for, for several years, knowing that in three years, you're going to be writing your thesis and you need to know exactly on what page uh, someone made a certain argument or, or provided a certain piece of evidence. So I'm struggling with this, feeling extremely overwhelmed. On the other hand, at the, at, at the same time, uh, what I'm tracking is this really exciting movement around open science. And part of that is sharing and making it easier to access the end result. So, you know, the open access journal articles or books or data sets. But there's also a lot of people experimenting with sharing more of the process. And so instead of waiting for a full year or more, oftentimes, uh, to see what someone comes up with, um, having, for example, open lab notebooks where the experiment that you're doing in your lab today is live on the net and people can come in and say like, oh, you know, did you try to mix that chemical in this fashion? And, and you get this much more, um, and we see a little bit of maybe this collaboration now around the coronavirus that you know, science is just getting sped up. And I thought, I love this concept, but I don't do labs. I don't have lab notebooks, but I read all this stuff. And maybe some of that reading would be useful to others long before I finish my PhD. And of course, only a small percentage of it will be in the PhD. And, and so I started, um, and I, I was a much less of a software developer back then. So uh, what I was trying to do was really hack together some kind of a workflow using different open source tools that I found, um, Skim for reading PDFs, DocuWiki uh, as kind of a, a, you know, a wiki, uh, but a little bit precursor to Rome. Um, uh, and Bibdesk, and you know, so I was using Apple Script, I had some Ruby scripts, I had some Keyboard Maestro. It was really like Frankenstein. <laughs> but the <laughs> workflow that it enabled was actually quite amazing, and in fact, has not really been super superseded today. Um, and shockingly to me, because and I showed it to a bunch of people who loved it, and a number of PhD students started adopting it, even though it was very fickle, and it took me like an hour at someone's computer to kind of set up all the different components. And if they upgraded their OS, it was all lost. So it was not sustainable, but it was a great medium for really exploring uh, this, this idea of note-taking. And so some of the things that we're discussing in our community today is, you know, so I'm reading this article, you know, I'm highlighting, I'm now taking maybe higher level notes. How am I organizing this? Um, and of course, what my system was very far from is all of the things that, that Rome enables. Although I did actually, I, I did even experiment with some kinds of kind of tags and backlinks and stuff that was extremely hacky. So when I came up and then because it was so brittle, I kind of stopped using it myself even. And for a few years, I've just been doing things very ad hoc. And uh, starting in Minerva, a small part of my job is still to do research. Um, 
And so I was looking for a workflow to really handle that. And, then, and so when I came across Rome in December, I think it was a Venkatesh Rao tweet, uh, you know, the, the tweet storm, uh, which I think uh, a lot of the early contributors kind of came through that. And I just looked at uh, the, the interview between uh, Connor and Tiago Forte, who I also had been aware of. And, you know, immediately I kind of saw uh, both that the specific use case that I'd been experimenting with actually seven years earlier um, was, you know, taken to the nth degree. But yeah. I also saw that what Rome was capable of today was really just an embryo of this much longer term vision, which I share around, you know, Memex or just uh, interlinking and, and much better collaboration data sharing. And I saw that Connor really had that vision. And so I thought, hey, this is, this is uh, super exciting to be part of. And uh, I, haven't, you know, I haven't looked back since. I think, you know, <laughs> apart from this tool being, being pretty amazing, uh, the community and, and a lot of people have commented on this, but obviously like we're sitting here right now talking to each other, probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, and, and, the num- and, and the number of people that have been having incredibly interesting conversations with and are even now starting small projects with uh, because of not the Rome software, but the Rome spirit or, or whatever you want to call it is, is um, pretty <laughs> mind-blowing. Yeah, um, a lot of many different kinds of users are really resonating with that vision that uh, Connor has. And I, I really like that you've noticed or you've tried to make this workflow from years ago. And then you noticed that with this tweet storm by Venkatesh uh, on, uh, on Twitter, you see that, oh, this is what I was trying to do. Like, right, but it scaled a lot better or it, there's a whole team behind it, right? And you can probably visualize the vision on your own. So let's dive into that, actually. I'm going to play the idiot here. I'm just going to ask you a very general surface level question and you can deep dive into it as much as you can. How do you use Rome? Like what goes in there? What doesn't go in there? And I would love to hear more and more questions about what kind of information is worth getting a page, like its own page? Is there like a certain method that you use to determine whether or not, uh, say, something long form should be broken down into more blocks or less blocks? Or um, I would love to hear your take on this. So I'll take a a, a quick step back because I think it it might be informative. Um, Yeah. And and there is this video, which maybe you can put in the show notes, where I compare the thing I hacked together seven years ago uh, with Rome, which I released in December, just when I had started using Rome for a few days. And what I'm so most of my workflow was really focused around, you know, getting bibliographic metadata, reading PDFs, getting uh, the the clippings into my wiki, all of that kind of boring but you know very important stuff. Uh, Yeah, but then. I had a problem. So I have had 20 articles about a topic and I had spent a lot of time. I'd read them. I'd taken notes. I'd taken what I called high level notes, which are kind of my own, you know, maybe now we'd call them evergreen or whatever. And yet the problem was I now had 20 wiki pages and I needed to get a paper out of this. And so I was really struck and I was like, I don't have 20 screens. Like I feel, I felt like I needed more <laughs> space to put them all next to each other, or I was really uh, not sure how to proceed. And I thought about, actually, it's interesting because back then, um, tagging was a really big topic in, in educational technology. Um, there was a lot of like social websites. There was this concept of 
folksonomy, which was a bit of an uh, alternative to the traditional formal metadata that, you know, a librarian has like this kind of vocabulary that's very clearly defined. And they say, hey, let's just choose tags randomly and it'll kind of emerge. And that was kind of a very new idea. And, and so I thought, you know, what if... So I started actually putting these things into task paper, which was... Um, I've never used Workflowy or any of those, but task paper is a little bit similar, I think. It just has the hierarchical bullets. And I would, and I always use the Bibdesk site key. So for people who haven't used Bibdesk, basically it'll you know, generate a unique text identifier for each paper, which could be last name and you know, so Johnson 1990. And you can just put that all around in a, in a text file and then you can turn it into a really beautiful citation. So I would just use that. So put Johnson 1990 and then indent and I would put a few points and I would maybe indent again. I mean, this is really old stuff for Rome users, but at that time that was, <laughs> felt kind of fresh to me. And I realized that by putting it in this hierarchical format, if I now look at a, because the problem is that there, in the Johnson paper, there were four different things. So the one was that his methodology was really unique. Another thing is that he identified a key term. A third thing is that he you know, contradicted someone else. And I wanted this to be in completely different parts of my paper. And I realized that if I tag a line here, I know a lot about that line. I know that it belongs to the parent because it comes from this academic paper, Johnson 1990. But I also know it has these children. And so, I mean, again, this seems so obvious to Rome users, but really seven years ago, it was not. Uh, yeah. for me it was, uh, so I wrote some kind of script that so basically just went through a text file. It wasn't live or dynamic. They would take a text file that was marked in this way and it would generate so that I could see methodology and I would see Johnson 1990. And I, I mean, these are basically linked references, but, you know, um, and, and to me that was completely revolutionary the way I was able to, to seamlessly kind of extract information that way, but also always keeping track of where it came from because that was so key. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's really where I saw the, the link between that and Rome. So to answer your question, um, I, when I first, you know, I've, I've used wikis for many, many years, both personally and uh, also in uh, educational contexts um, for a lot of collaborative learning. And so one of the things that struck me as strange when I started using Rome was actually the daily pages concept, because mm -hmm. I thought... I'm not really a journaler, you know, I'm not one of those girls who are like decorating their bullet journal on YouTube and stuff like that. And okay, you know, well, that's fine. You know, there should maybe be an option to not have it, but whatever. And, and now I think it's one of the absolutely most brilliant things about Rome. Talking about human computer interaction and design, we talk a lot about affordances you know, design affordances that are like the way that a door handle is shaped to, to kind of signal whether you should push or pull or these kind of things. So they're not things that enable you to do something that would, would have been impossible before. Um, but they're, they're, they're kind of almost like nudges. They, they gently, they make certain things easier. Um, just like maybe Twitter makes shitposting easier or, you know, YouTube comments <laughs> makes, you know, it attracts a certain kind of usage. And so the daily pages, they just, you open it and it's just there. And you're like, well, I, I don't know. I might as well write something here. And, and the thing is, it really, it, it, it teaches you that you don't have to worry about the pages. I think that's the really key thing. Because if you have any traditional wiki system, and this includes TiddlyWiki and, you know, all of the cool wiki systems, the first thing you ask yourself is like, okay, which page am I going to open now? Um, mm. And in Rome, 
you know, you, you, you just start typing and then you, you figure it out afterwards because very often information wants to live in multiple places. And so I'm personally now for the last few months, I input 95 to 99% of my content on my daily pages. But I, I use links, of course, very, very <laughs> frequently. And, and the thing is, for me, if you click on, for example, if I click on your name uh, in my Rome, there will certainly not be anything on that page. There will be a lot of link, link references. And to me, there's almost no distinction. The only distinction becomes when I want to really clean that up, when I want to organize it. And I have uh, experiment, and that's where I think it goes into a little bit, you know, this idea of a, of a note hierarchy, uh, whether it's evergreen notes, you know, other things like that. I even I have a few videos where I experimented with um, different approaches to kind of. So, for example, I realized that for Settle Custom, I had like seventy or eighty backlinks or link references. Um, and I'm like, because you know, I just keep seeing interesting stuff around it, and I'm like, okay, that's that's um, hard to work with. And uh, so that in that case, so for those kind of pages, I kind of treat the link references in, as an inbox. And what I do is I put a hashtag P when I processed a, um, a link reference and I filter that out. And so I basically went in and I either said, hey, this is irrelevant or I'm going to, you know, out drag it. Or maybe if it's a daily page, I don't care about it. I'm just going to move it or whatever. And once I'm like happy with it, I do a, a, a hashtag P and then it disappears. And then, so now my, for example, Zettelkast or Wikidata, I did a bunch of research on Wikidata. I also had like huge amount of it. And now it's like <laughs> inbox zero. But that means that the next time I see stuff, it's going to pop up. So if I go to that page again, I'm like, oh, I got four, you know, I might put them in. But that's really, that's not like the, the norm. That's for the topics that I really care about where I do a lot of research. Um, whereas for you, probably I'll never do that because you know, or maybe in a few years, who knows, but I, you know, for a lot of things, I just have three or four or five things and, and it's really okay to just keep them in the link references and, and easily find them there. Yeah. I, I can see the potential worry or the potential anxiety behind having 70 to 80 linked references on one phrase. Cause I have had that, uh, for, uh, I've tried to do an experiment where I would turn a phrase into a page. And just out of curiosity, uh, like, for example, I would use the phrase I want and turn that into a page and then just connect the references and just see to see what happens. Uh, I now regret that because now you have like 100 plus references and they all mean different things. And it depends on the purpose, right? Because if you have an intention behind linking those in the first place, it makes sense. Like, are you going to use or create something, whether it's a post, an article or a podcast or a video? that requires that linkage to exist in the first place. Uh, that's probably where referring to link references as an inbox is probably a really good analogy for that. I should actually consider, I, are you okay with having many different pages, even if they have like just one or two references? Because, I, yeah. Yeah, okay, all right, okay. So as well, long as it- Because I mean, the, again, like the, you know, a page is a tag and a tag is a page. And a link is a concept and a concept is a tag and a page. So, you know, like if I have a meeting with you, I will definitely link your name. And if I hear someone mention a book, I will definitely link that book. And it's quite possible that I never come across that book again. And in that case, it doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, but it's really cool 
when you know suddenly I and this happens more and more. And I've only been using Rome for four months. I mean, I can't imagine you know after ten years, but uh, that you you know you say, hey, I'm going to have a meeting with this guy, and you shift click on his name, and you're like, oh, I here's a Twitter thread from him like from four months ago, and oh, this guy like mentioned him in this podcast. Um, like that's yeah. really neat. So it's so cheap to do it. It's you know just silly not to in a way um, for those things that are you know like as I said names places um, books companies um, podcasts all of those things. The thing that I've been struggling more with uh, is this concept of settle cost and our evergreen notes, which is you know so popular. And I did read also over Christmas the the Sanke Arons book. Uh, how to take mm-hmm. smart notes. Um, and of course, I've been following Andy Matushak uh, very, very closely. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this. And you know, I love browsing his public site. And yet, I, I, ha- I have some real reservations for myself about how you know, this concept of evergreen notes didn't, didn't fit me. It seemed way too polished. And I'm like, I don't have... Like, it's, it seems like an ebook that is just like linked, like a hypertext book. And like, I don't, you know, that doesn't fit me. And, and so what I've come up with after quite a while, because the nice thing about Rome is, you know, it, it, it's, you don't figure it out on day one. It's not like Notion where you sit down and kind of like design your information architecture. At least that's how I feel it is. Uh, yeah. it, it really, so a lot of things that I'm doing now, I kind of slowly, slowly integrated like daily uh, templates or, or spaced repetition. And so, so the thing that right now seems to be kind of useful to me is I have a concept where I, that I call emerging concepts, which is somewhat similar to Evergreen Notes, but it feels different to me because it's much more tentative. And it's really, um, it's an attempt at, it's a, to, you know, there are all these things you think about, and sometimes they're very concrete. Like I'm thinking about, you know, this podcast, I'm thinking about this book, I'm thinking about Nietzsche or Freud, right? Those are very concrete things. But then you're like, I'm thinking about how we could better learn collaboratively. And that's not a, you know, given that there's no, I mean, that company doesn't exist yet or that, you know, organization or that project, it's not a project, it's a thing I'm thinking about, but I keep coming back to it. And I realize, um, or I, I think about the fact that a lot of people on Twitter are saying, you know, you should, you should learn to do something. Like to, the goal of learning is to, to produce or to, to make something. And I'm like, huh, is that really always the case? Like, what if I want to learn about Play-Doh? So it's like something in my bread. And so I find that by giving it an, a title that could be you know, long, could be a sentence, could be a question. And then just by having that now, when I, when I see new, when I have new thoughts about it, or when I see things that refer to it, I can tag it. And then over time, it's like this pointillistic cloud. Um, maybe it, it converges to something. and so. For example, I thought a lot about what would an ad hoc book club look like? And I started mm-hmm. adding things and I started having conversations with people. And now that's become something a little bit more concrete that I'm actually you know, probably going to try out. And I have a lot of other ones that are, you know, some of, so there again, like some of them, I just have a bunch of backlinks where I think about stuff on my daily pages or I see things in the, in the reading. And a few of the other ones, I've actually kind of written up something. And, and then I also sometimes publish them in my digital garden. That's the the ad hoc book club. I stumbled upon that when I was reading through your digital garden. Um, it, it's it's fascinating to me because I've never ever considered 
the concept of an emerging concept to be enough on a digital garden because I've seen multiple digital gardens where they have, say, hypertext or they have polished notes like you mentioned. Uh, and I've always thought that that was the standard, right? The de facto, uh, what should be on your digital garden? Like that kind of question. If I was to try to answer that, Andy's digital garden is like the standard. But I, I read I read through your notes actually on your, on your garden. I'm like, oh, I relate a lot more to this because my notes, I'm not going to call, I'm not trying to insult you here, but my notes are very chaotic. So they may not end in complete sentences. They may have links from other places. Um, their references are not to any standard uh, in any academia. It's more like copy paste from <laughs> the URL. And then I'm just like, okay, whatever. And I just tagged the name. Uh, I know that you wrote in one of your Twitter threads that you have an eventual goal to like curate all the resources and links in your digital garden. But I'm just curious, now that you have Rome in your hands and you have all these emerging concepts uh, to be posted there uh, more and more, do you have an eventual like concept that you want to turn into something more evergreen or something more, I don't want to say evergreen, uh, concrete, like something that I can maybe interact with? So when I when I wrote that in my Twitter thread, actually, I wasn't so much referring to the current content on my room, but more that I feel like throughout these projects, whether it's a peer-to-peer -peer university or um, the, the software that I developed, I generated a huge amount of kind of artifacts, um, design documents and insights and discussions about pedagogy at peer-to-peer -peer university. And it's all kind of scattered in my email, in you know, all kinds of different websites on, on my YouTube channel. And I feel like, and so oftentimes when I'm, I'm mailing with people, I'll, I'll dig out stuff um, and I'll, I'll spend a bunch of time finding it. Now I try, whenever I do that, at least I kind of also record it in Rome so it's easier to find next time. But I would like to just go through and, and you know, like keep to, I think there was a massive amount of value created through peer-to-peer -peer university in all of our discussions, and it's really not available anywhere. So like one of the things I'd love to do is just kind of dig through that and like for anyone else in the future who wants to do something similar, you know, maybe they can learn something from us or, or maybe it can generate something. So that was what I was referring to there. But in more general, I have been thinking a lot about this you know, we have, we're kind of spoiled for choice these days. We have so many possible publication channels available to us. Um, yeah. and, and I really like sharing my ideas. I hope that sometimes they're useful to others. Uh, I also really like getting feedback or, or finding collaborators. Uh, and so I, you know, and so sometimes I think like, well, I have this, I'm thinking about this thing or I know a lot about a certain thing. Should I make a Twitter thread? Uh, should I try to write a, a digital note that kind of makes it to my digital garden? I have a newsletter now. Um, mm. And I'm, you know, uh, I think, and I, I haven't written for a while. And part of the reason maybe is because I started quite ambitiously by having like fairly complete articles, whereas I love, I know a lot of newspapers are, uh, newsletters are kind of, you know, here's five links that I'm thinking of. Whereas I was trying to really write something solid, which I really enjoyed. But of course, it takes a lot of time. Um, I, you know, I see that people are putting out eBooks, uh, like for example, like Lisa Khan, Lenkatesh, some of those. Uh, Tiago, you know, they they'll kind of repurpose content they have for eBooks. There's podcasts. I've actually had the crazy idea to maybe start my own at some point. Uh, there's uh, YouTube. So I'm like, what do you put where? Where do you put your effort? And how do you move things 
through a hierarchy, right? So you can, maybe you start with notes on your daily page, maybe you tweet, maybe you get some feedback, maybe, you know, but then like time is also limited. So you, you, like, I don't have my own social media <laughs> team that's just standing by. So it, that's a typical emerging concept, by the way. That's a typical thing that, I don't know if I have one right now, but that's a typical thing that I could ask myself. And then as maybe now we're discussing with you, maybe tomorrow I'll discuss it with my friend. I'm kind of slowly adding little nuggets there. But uh, just going back to the digital garden thing. Uh, so yeah, one of the things I'm really thinking about a lot is, is collaboration. Uh, my PhD was on collaborative learning and there we really spent a lot of time looking at different interfaces for uh, interactive kind of meaning making. Uh, and, and there's a lot of really rich actually research there that's very not well known by our community and which I'm hoping to kind of somehow uh, share with because it's, it's hidden in, in PDFs and stuff, but there's a lot of high, good value there, I think, for us. Uh, and then the, the, the interest in open science and just science, making science much more accessible and, and effective. So I am really interested in, you know, can you harness this kind of creative exhaust that comes from all this individual thinking and note-taking? And, and you know, like, I, so for example, Joel Chan um, has mm. been sharing his role with me and he's actually, he's an academic researching this particular topic and he's using his role, you know, for his literature notes and stuff like that. And even though he didn't at all try to make it useful to others, because I overlap so much with him in interest, and we share maybe, even though we're from different disciplines, we share a lot of, I guess, background, I found it incredibly useful. Like into, and I, I could see what he was working on and provide comments and discussions and stuff like that. So like this idea that um, undigested notes are not useful is seems to have been kind of just accepted by our community, but I don't agree with it. I think under many circumstances, it, they can be, be useful and, and maybe we should even lower the barriers somewhat to, to, to sharing them. And then I also want to think about um, how we can better, for example, interlink digital gardens or what are ways in which, you know, uh, we can uh, have interwiki links or, or we can subscribe to each other. We can have these kind of things feed into um, some kind of hive mind. I don't know. <laughs> these are all <laughs> things I'm, I'm thinking about. Can you imagine uh, sort of like a town or a city where multiple gardens exist and then, you know, you make some sort of pact where a lot of the links will link to each other, like you would link to somebody else's garden and somebody else would link to yours. I would think that that would be possible if we start having potential collaborations or ways to link to other graphs on Rome. So, for example, you, like, Joel opened up his graph for you to see. My, my assumption is that that's like... Um, maybe either by screen share or is it actually like become a publicized graph and then he's allowed you to like get access to it. I'm not sure, but say that we have private graphs and you have like certain access, like you gain access to like someone else's graph uh, by consent. So let's say I have my own private graph, you have your own private graph and then we give each other access and you put a specific hashtag or a specific page to say like, oh, Norman can access this page, these following pages, right? Page A, like one, two, three, four, five. And then from there, I can like add blocks if I feel like it. Maybe that might help. You know, like that would be, that would be insane. Like, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that that's the vision for Rome. Uh, it yeah. might not come for another year or two. And I think that's why 
there's a lot of experiments now with publishing, you know, also because Rome is so low, slow to load <laughs> and, and <laughs> there's some security issues. So a lot of people yes. are, are putting a lot of time into, you know, uh, I, I have a workflow that goes kind of does that. I can tag certain pages and they're automatically published to like a Gatsby. But it's again, it's, it's back to that like pretty hacky workflow that isn't something that most people would be comfortable with, but to try it out. Um, so I think Connor is definitely interested in that. And uh, I would love to see it somehow interoperable also across tools because like, why shouldn't we be able to link with Obsidian or with uh, mm. you know, the open source Rome clone or even a TiddlyWiki as long as there are some kind of basic um, standards that could be further in the, in the future. But I think, yeah, like thinking, so there's like, you know, there's me just having access to your page, maybe subscribing to certain keywords and seeing updates. There's, oh, wow. um, you know, maybe you could have uh, like the same kind of concept of an inbox. If you were, if we were community and we were all taking notes on evergreen notes, you kind of see like in the linked references that like, oh, here, you know, and then we could also actually help each other curate that common space. So that instead of just having 500, I go in and I kind of like sort things. And of course then, you know, we, we have to argue, maybe we can fork it. So here we have like three different, <laughs> I mean, it, it gets into really complex design issues but this is nothing that people haven't actually thought a lot about earlier there is some and like there there was a video by i think drew mill shah i think his name was where he's talking about iroam and eroam uh that was actually a really brilliant kind of prototype i can send you the link iroam and uh, yeah yeah please do. a brilliant prototype of, of how some of this stuff could be and you know you could also imagine um the so one thing is, is just really explicit linking or even like, you know, we all tag exactly the same book title and stuff like that. But um, semantic technologies these days are, are pretty potent and you could very well uh, imagine something that uh, suggests, so if I'm writing about ad hoc book clubs and you're writing about, you know, um, collaborative groups working on, I don't know, a philosophy that even yeah. though we don't use the same actual words that it would be able to suggest that, Hey, you guys are in the same social network and you know, these words are pretty similar. Um, and the meaning seems to overlap a lot and you're even like linking to the same three things or whatever. So maybe you should look at what he's writing about and maybe you should like actually collaborate with him. Cause that's, you know, for me, it's, it's not just like all this knowledge, like I can go on Wikipedia. That's great. I love Wikipedia, but it's, it feels very impersonal. One of the attractions to me of being able to see your ideas, some of your ideas or some of Andy's ideas is that I can, you know, they're, they're not fixed um, and they might inspire me. The thing I write might then feed directly back to you, uh, but also it, it might actually create all these interpersonal connections and we can start like building stuff together. Yeah, those interpersonal connections are probably one of the best, uh, not only in trying to build like your own digital garden in general, but the fact that we're willing to share part of like our progress in using Rome or um, what we've learned and then how we how we deconstruct that. And I think that using, using the word deconstruct is like the entire point uh, of Rome to take something in, put it in there, deconstruct it to however context is most relevant to what you're working on. And then from there you reuse it or think on it or create something out of all the different connections. Oh, I, I love this. Like that, that's why I like this tool. It's just so interesting despite the slow loading. I'm not sure about on your end. Uh, for me, it's not that bad because I think it's because I'm GMT plus eight. So maybe not that many users uh, on at the same time. Maybe that's one factor, but uh, I do have a few more questions to close this off. And then we could talk a little bit more after because I uh, probably want to 
check out which phrases should be pages. But Stan, how would you describe Roam to someone who hasn't started using it yet? So one of the interesting things to me about Roam is a lot of the things I get excited about are pretty niche and you know most people around me wouldn't be interested. And with Roam, although it's a little bit rough on the edges around right now, but like I'm, I talked to my my brother who is um, you know operating a bike store and uh, and goes around the country visiting um, other bike stores, looking at their um, workshops because that's his background, it's like as a as a head of workshops, who's so an expert in that. And I was like, look, imagine if you're like you know in Bergen and you're visiting their workshop and you know this. A bunch of stuff and you, you know you could tag it like this and then like later you come back and you want to make a report and you can very quickly see all of the workshops that have this issue or all of the workshops that have that issue or maybe you have certain issues with certain bike brands that you want to actually keep track of when you go to visit that factory in germany and you're like hey actually we have five issues with a chain or like you know or the marketing right so and then like yeah. my, my wife is a filmmaker and you know, of course, they deal with massive amounts of information, both in their research, but also like when they're editing the film and they're trying to keep track of all their clips and all of their their plot lines. And again, you know, like yes, it's possible that you know not everyone is going to just see Rome and, and see what it is, but I can come up with a use case uh, for almost anyone. It feels like, and that is that is like genuinely that they 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 find useful. And to me, like the you know, the hierarchical bullets and the backlinking, uh, meaning that you can have these things that are living in lots of different places and it's living with a context because we have had backlinks before uh, in, in some wikis or blogs and stuff like that. But then it's just like, here's 500 pages that mention this word. And that's not, I mean, that's cool, but it's not, it's, it's very, very different from seeing like, you know, from this book, here's the one paragraph where like Nietzsche talked about, yeah, I don't know, um, becoming. And here's a book. And yeah, you know, like I just love one one thing I'm really fascinated by. This is a little bit inside, but how using Rome trains you to think differently. I'm pretty mm. sure there is an effect there because I'm pretty sure that I now, when I'm going for a walk in the forest and I'm listening to a podcast or I'm just thinking, I think more interconnectedly. Um, because I'm, you know, I'm used to working in Rome and I love, you know, I'm reading, uh, about the Alexander technique and I'm like, ha, huh, this is kind of like, you know, drawing with the left brain and the right brain. And this is kind of like the meditation book I was reading. And this is kind of like that book about pedagogy and attention. And, and, and it's just, it's like a rush for your brain to, to, to be yeah. making these, these kind of connections to me. That's. I mean, that's, that's the, the beauty of, of Rome. And final question, but you've probably already answered that uh, with the last bit right there. What does Rome mean to you? To me, beyond what I just said, it means having a long-time perspective. Um, I was an academic for almost all my life. And although academics are kind of famous for taking the long perspective and going deep, unfortunately, in modern uh, day society, it's an extremely stressful um, career. And being a postdoc, I basically had a time limited position that I knew after four years, I would lose my job no matter what. And probably the next job would be in a different country. 
and I didn't know where. And so, it, and, yeah, and I needed to publish a certain amount of papers. And so there was a lot of stuff I looked at where I was like, man, this is going to take me so long to learn this new theory that I'm just going to skip it because I need to, to publish now. I need to get stuff out. It's too late. I'm, I can't go back and do another PhD. And now, uh, since a year, I'm working for a company uh, where I'm doing a lot of the same stuff. And somehow, I have a much longer-term perspective. And there are so many things that I want to learn as a person and also relate to my job and, and to, to projects. And now I kind of say, you know what? If I want to learn ancient Greek philosophy, if I want to really understand uh, Piaget, which is you know, uh, educational theorist, it's probably going to take me 10 years. Oh, well, that's okay. You know, I'll start now and imagine 10 years how much I'll know. And, and to me, <laughs> Rome is the companion on that journey where I can read something today. I can know that it's going to be there in 10 years, but also that my understanding of what I just read will continue to improve. I might move it around. I might link it to new things. Um, so, and, and, and it gives, yeah, it, it's, it's like a calm feeling. That you, that you can capture something, you can build on it. It's not written in stone, but it also doesn't kind of just wash away with the water. Yeah. I love that, the calm feeling. I understand that a lot. Uh, I feel that every time I open up Rome, I'm like, what can I write in here that can serve me for the next 10 years or even way more than that? Uh, and with that, I think that's a very good note to end on. Stan, thank you so much. If we want to reach out to you, to find out more about Minerva Project or find out more about how you use Rome Research, how do we contact you? Probably Twitter is uh, the easiest way. Um, I, my DMs are open. Um, if not, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so I'm, I'm the only one with my name in the world, I think. So if you Google me, um, I can't hide. And there's a lot of stuff out there on my YouTube channel, on my blog that I've been keeping for 14 years, my newsletter, which you can put a link to. And I will yeah. come up with a new issue soon, I promise. And, uh, and my digital <laughs> garden, which I'm kind of slowly building out. And of course, links to all of these will be in the description right below, as well as the public Rome graph, which the link to that as well will be in the show notes. So if you just want to have a look at all the bi-directional pages that we will be tinkering on, then you can check that out. Stian, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. And for a full version of the show notes to this episode, you can check out the public Rome graph. The link to that will be in the description right below. For more updates, comments, feedback, and suggestions, you can reach out to me at RomeFM on Twitter. Keep roaming your thoughts, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care. <laughs>